Hello, and welcome to today's podcast, The Power of Performance Worldwide, where me and my group, Arthurstown, will delve deep into the characteristics and intricacies of many musical societies across the globe. More specifically in this episode, how each culture and their music partake in breathtaking spectacles to showcase their traditions. I'm your host, Laura Trapiti, and this is the third installment of our Diverse Worlds of Music podcast, brought to you also by Josh, Luke, Chris, Austin, and James. Hello, everyone. Once again, it is the Austin Arthur's Morning Show. My name, of course, as always, is Austin, and I'll be sharing some amazing content with you once again. If you enjoy this episode or segment of the podcast and are intrigued to learn more because we have super cool content, subscribe to my page and get notified for more segments in the future. Here we go. All right, so today we are learning a little bit about tradition-esque music in Korean percussion. So, um, there are two types of tradition-esque music for Korean percussion music, but we're just going to focus on one today. Um, we're going to focus on pungmul, which is farmer's percussion and dance bands throughout traditional Korea. Um, pungmul... Uh, actually means wind object however this music this genre of music sorry in korea actually has four main purposes or had four main purposes so first of all it was one of its purposes was to perform in rural ceremonies to bless houses events um the forming and developing of new villages and also to bless the crop growth for the next season. In addition to that, um, it also, this music encouraged work. It's kind of like cheerleaders um, to help motivate the workers, you know, playing the music to get them pumped up to work and actually while they're working to keep them focused. Um, Thirdly, they also used this music to fundraise for village projects, you know, erecting different buildings and such used it to make money to fund those things um and ultimately it also the final purpose um of pungmo was to actually it became a form of entertainment um until the mid 20th century or so um and this is kind of the most important purpose that we will be talking about and uh actually um, one of our viewers, Jacob, asked a really, really good question. Um, it says here, he says, he asks, how did they play the Pungmul? How, you know, how is it used? Well, actually, um, essentially at the start of their procession, they had an ensemble. Um, and pretty much um, it's all started at the beginning where they had a flag bearer who was then followed by a bunch of instrumentalists. Oh wait, um, Samantha, you hit this right on the button. She actually knew where I was headed and she she actually asked what kind of instrumentalists make up a pungmul procession or an ensemble? Well, that is a really good question. And basically 
a Pungmul procession is made up of four instrumentalists. The Guagnari, Jing, Django, and the Buk. Um, and all four of those instrumental instruments have different different uh just they're different instruments um but besides those four instruments um there are also dancer acrobats playing small drums and also actor dancers who parody social roles so there is a lot going on here there's the four instruments grouped up and then the two other dancer acrobats one and the actor dancers um, following them. So it's kind of a collage of a lot of different things, which is really, really cool. Now that you know a little bit about the, of what the Pokemon was, um, it's kind of unfortunate to say this, but, um, as the city started to grow and urbanize, um, this genre of music kind of started to disappear because people going from village to village really wasn't a thing anymore. I mean, people kind of just stayed in the cities where they were and didn't really go from place to place as much. Um, so this genre kind of started to disappear. Um, and this ultimately led to the government declaring it an intangible cultural declaring it intangible cultural property. And essentially this kind of got rid of the improvisatory practice that made this type of music so unique and cool. Um, it's a really sad ending to the genre, this kind of genre, but it, it's still around today, um, just not very tradition-esque. You know, the purpose really isn't there. They're not, they're not playing this music um, to, you know, bless villages and all of that. They're not, they're not playing this to, you know, encourage work, you know, it's really more just, um, to entertain people now. That's kind of the central purpose, um, now for this type of genre, which, you know, kind of takes away from what the genre really was originally, um, so kind of a sad ending, um, but at the same time, it's still around today if you ever want to give it a listen. All right, well, that concludes this segment of the podcast, um, the Austin Arthur's Morning Show. And of course, if you enjoyed this, you know, subscribe and hear more. Um, but before we go, I just want to say one fun fact about um, this genre that we just covered. Something that I think is super cool is that for these performances that they used to do, pretty much all of them are outside um, with tens of players, and they're all in constant motion, which is, I think, absolutely extraordinary. But, yep, that's it for today. Um, and if you like what you heard, subscribe for more, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi everyone, my name is Luke McThorne, and today we're going to be talking about Native American music. And in particular, we're going to be talking about Native American powwow music. So uh, let's get started.
that. So Native Americans, they're the indigenous people of North America. In particular, we're talking about uh, Native Americans that live within the United States of America, the continental states in particular. Um, the Native Americans prior to European contact were not one monolithic culture, but instead many hundreds, of, many thousands of different cultures and tribes, each with their own sort of practices, religions, languages, etc., etc. Even with all this diversity, though, there is some there's some commonalities between the types of music they play. Um, and one particular is some of these commonalities come out during the form of a certain kind of festival called a powwow. So a powwow is usually oftentimes sometimes referred to as intertribal, is when a number of tribes in an area come down to a place and all agree to put on a performance, play some music. Um, the per these intertribals are usually attended by mostly Native Americans, however, oftentimes uh, non-natives will come to join. That powwow, not usually not not as performers, but as part of the audience. So, as part of their uh, spectacle of these performance, usually, uh, so there's usually a couple different parts parts of the performance. Oftentimes, there is a drum circle. Native American music, oftentimes, particular in intertribal music, consists of of singing, where a group of singers sings vocables, not lyrics, uh, meaningless syllables to uh, a melody, and then it, this uh, singing is accompanied by a drum, usually as sort of an accompaniment instrument. And a drum circle is when a group of people sit around a drum and play it with a constant beat and sing vocables and sing a song to go along with it. Besides this drum, of course, the drummers uh, usually are sitting Besides this drummer, of course, some people are usually dancing to the music. Um, usually people will come in wearing very elaborate costumes. Men usually wear more elaborate costumes consisting of very colorful cloth and feathers and beadwork, whereas women would wear more simple dresses, but still oftentimes having the feathers and beadwork. Um, the, the dancing is very athletic in style, with lots of jumping and leaping. And there are, the dances are usually led by men. So with all this dancing and stuff, the music is usually played in a sort of arena, usually a uh, kind of arena or sort of coliseum kind of with four entrances, usually at cardinal directions. Um, besides this music, of course, the powwow, the intertribal music festival is usually a kind of I mean, festival beyond just the music. There's oftentimes games, music, food at these kinds of event, events, uh, making lots of people come down and listen and eat the food. Moving on to the last section of today's podcast, Across the Pacific, I'll be discussing and answering some questions about significant performances in Indonesia, specifically the Javanese gamelan and music in Bali. Gamelan, or musical ensemble, has huge diversity in the number and types of instruments found in Japanese courts. However, many metallophones are present, specifically serons, bonangs, and gongagangs. Some key characteristics of the Japanese gamelan include ostinato, or repeating melodies, clear and resident sounds, 
steady tempos with the doubling of sounds, and collatomic structure, or the marking of fixed beats within the metric structure of a musical piece by particular instruments. In gamelan music, these include gong, kenong, kempel, and katuk. There are some spiritual aspects that influence the Japanese gamelan. We may discover something of the complex relationship between Islam and music in Java by citing some observations. The book states, The gamelan found by the Islam on arrival in Java as an indip- indispensable element of all Hindu ceremonials has never become an integral part of religious rite. Accordingly, during the month of fasting, all orchestras in the whole of the Javanese territory are expected to remain silent. The princes, for that matter, are regarded as above customary law. When, for example, one of the memorial days falls in the fasting month, then the prohibition of the gamelan playing, it seems, is raised entirely. Princely privilege was partly related to the use of music in rites and ceremonies, and to do away with music altogether would have undermined it. Yet acceptance of Islam required some recognitions of his precepts. Here's a sneak peek of what the Javanese court music might sound like. some information on Javanese music and insight, we can discuss the music of Bali, another island of Indonesia, a Hindu-majority province, where especially music and dance have undergone many changes over the centuries as political and social circumstances have created different requirements and possibilities for performance. Ultimately, in Bali the courts were dissolved and the descendants of nobles who were often employed as agents of Dutch rule rarely had the financial resources to maintain the elaborate musical establishments associated with courtly life which resulted in a whole new sound of Indonesian gamelan. Now that we have a little background, let's quickly move to the instrumental inquiry segment before we discuss some more. This viewer asks, what are some of the differences between the sound and overall spectacle of the Balinese and Javanese gamelan? That is a very interesting question and helps us move along to our second musical experience, experience of this segment. With the sound of Javanese gamelan in mind, and before we discuss some differences, here's an audio clip of Balinese gamelan music. Characteristics of Balinese gamelan, with which some differ with Java, include an operatic performance style, the use of many metallophones similar to Java, a much faster tempo, a smaller ensemble, sophisticated technique involving very precise and staccato notes, as well as a higher sound quality due to the less use of low resonating gongs. The Balinese also play outside frequently. This less formal setting also reflects on the appearance of their clothes and much more traditional look to their instruments. Hello everyone, this is Shenzhou. Today I will talk about Chinese minority music. Chinese minority music is an inseparable and important part of the entire Chinese national music culture. All 15 sonic minorities in our country can sing and dance. They all have excellent and unique music created and uh, passed down by their own people. 
showing their own value of existence. As early as about 5,000 years ago, the Chinese music culture, which was formed by the Yellow River and the Yangtze River basins, showed a mixed development trend of multiple origins. Each ethnic minority in my country has its own development history and culture background. And uh, the music culture of each sonic group found on this basque has a wide variety of music genres, like the Han. The music of variety sonic minorities have, uh, can be divided into folk, music, uh, folk songs, folk instrument music, folk dance, folk rap art, and folk opera music. Folk songs are an art form used by Islamic minorities to express their thoughts, feelings, will, willing, and desires. Many Islamic minority areas are known as the land of Gohan music, singing is accompanied by their labor, production, social interaction, entertainment, and other activities. Their singing when dancing, engaged in argument culture production, singing and renting or followers. Talk about love and singing when they are miss their homeland, maybe. According to incomplete uh, statistics, there are more than 500 kinds of musical, musical instruments in various forms, including stringing, blowing, strumming, and uh, pursuing, and so on, with various performance. Mm, folk music of all Islamic groups includes solo and ensemble. The ensemble is divided into wind music, plug music, guns and drums, sing and pop music, and the streaming music and so on. Many Islamic minorities in my culture and uh, country have their own operas such as uh, Tibetan opera, Bai opera, John opera, Mehan opera, Mill um, opera, and so on, such as such a variety of historic minorities' songs, uh, music, and dramas constitute the spotlight music culture of historic minorities in my country and uh, occupy a prominent position in the history of Chinese national music. We are convinced that with the progress of the times, Islamic minority music will continue to create and uh, develop. And uh, the long-standing Chinese Islamic minority music art will surely develop further in the years to come. Okay, thanks for listening. Peace out. Hello, my name is James Bissett, and I will be your guide through the topic of Jingju Opera, uh, 
of Beijing. This topic comes to us from a user call-in, or I guess a Twitter call-in, at Gilbert underscore Camp 2 says, What is Jingju Opera, and how does it take on so many different forms of opera? Um, To answer this question, we're going to need to know a little bit of history of Beijing. Uh, So Beijing, obviously, is the capital of China. It's a mixture of a, you know, urban and rural landscape, so lots of different traditions and cultures combining there. In the mid-13th century, the Yuan Dynasty uh, took over China, and the emperor of that was a guy named Kublai Khan, who is the grandson of the great, I don't know about, I wouldn't say great, but Genghis Khan, who was one of the most uh, powerful and effective leaders in all of history. He was kind of a not good guy, though. Um... During this time, they dubbed the Silk Road, which ended up being a superhighway for cultural exchange and traditions, which is how, you know, uh, the Jingju Opera embodies so many different uh, traditions or traditional music from different regions um, in the area. So Jingju Opera, excuse me, originates in the late 18th century. Um... There are characters in it. Uh, the characters' names are Sheng, who is a male warrior, Don, who is a female warrior. Uh, those can both be young or old. Jing, uh, this is a heroic male figure with who has a painted face. Xiao, which is a male kind of like uh, comedic relief of the uh, characters. So those are all the characters. Um, it's a combination of music and dance. So the dance movements convey the certain moods of the characters and how they move depicts which character is who so you'll be able to tell just by their dancing movements the audience at most jingju operas have to have prior knowledge of you know the traditions of it or else they won't understand they'll need to be able to speak mandarin and the audience unfortunately is shrinking today it is becoming less and less popular Uh, Mandarin, as I said before, is the language that they sing in. It is a tonal language, which means that the inflection of your voice affects the meaning of the word. So it is a heightened speech, and only the characters and people of high social status use this. Um, In the dance, it it conveys similarly to uh, the music. It conveys the setting, the moods of the characters, and the situations that each of the characters are in. There's actually two types of music. So there's the Wu-Chang, which is the percussion music, like drums, uh, percussion or military music. And then there's the Wen-Chang, which is the civic or melodic music. And that is all of Jingju Opera of Beijing. Thank you. This is episode three, Global Music. The spectacle in our third section across the Pacific for an interesting topic on the theater culture Japan has and its history. The main type of musical performance is kabuki theater and is regularly performed all over Tokyo and the rest of Japan. The most famous venue is called the Kabukiza and has a main theater and also six restaurants. The performance can have many characters and a large degateri with many, many songs. The degateri are the onstage musicians and the offstage musicians are called the geza. There's also a narrator combination of duets 
uh, between characters and musicians. This culture is characterized by lots of color, lavish costumes, and staging, elaborate stage machinery, and specifically its fondness for the plots to be romantic and about love. That is an instant giveaway about kabuki theater. Another important type of theater in Japan's culture is bonraku puppet theater. This actually started before kabuki theater and had some influence on its origins. The, the narration is both song and spoken with music, also in between scenes and suspenseful moments. The puppets are given many very dramatic actions, along with chants and parts of heightened speech to provide emphasis on certain moments. The last type of theater that I'll be covering is no theater. This type of theater combines elements of folk dances, musical theatricals, religious and court entertainment of medieval times. There's a chief actor and a male chorus and ensemble behind him. The main themes of these performances are the redemption of human suffering through the love of Buddha. To recap, the theater presence in Japan is alive everywhere with multiple types of performances. The Kabuki, Bonraku, and No Theaters are some of the most popular and paved the way of culture for many other plays to come. Well, I hope everyone learned something and heard something new today. Until the next installment, thanks for listening.